I'm Edith Chakraborty, and this is The Business. Coming up, the man who made off with $65 billion is given a 150-year jail sentence. We discuss financial trust as the biggest swindle in history is put behind bars. Plus, forget grey men and their even greyer suits. We hear from a rising star of British business. In shock horror, she's not only a woman, she's under 35. And, as the CIA targets Wall Street for its newest recruits, we offer our own career advice to former city slickers. Listen very carefully. This is Business from The Guardian. The death of Michael Jackson still dominates the headlines, but there's other business to discuss besides the sunshine, the moonlight, good times, and indeed, the boogie. Here with me to do the talkings, Dan Roberts, The Guardian's head of business. It's been a while, Dan. Yeah, I think I'll have to go some to beat that pun, though. <laughs> this is going to be the cheesy business show. <laughs> Making her debut in the pod is Ruth Sunderland, The Observer's business editor. Hello. Welcome, Ruth. And our special guest this week is Jay Tong, an associate director at DTZ, the fourth largest global real estate advisor, and recently anointed as one of Britain's best young businesswomen. Delighted to have you here, Jade. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you coping with your newfound fame? It's all very exciting, very shocking, but um, I think I've seen some fantastic positive changes already just as a result of being on this list. We'll get on to women in business a little later, but first to New York. The judge entirely rejected uh, Madoff's arguments that he had uh, tried to assist prosecutors, that he essentially handed himself in. The judge said he he just didn't believe any of that. Uh, He didn't believe Madoff's estimate, in fact, of the extent of the crime. He said he wanted to send Madoff to prison for the full extent, the full 150 years, because he said it's important for deterrence. It's important for the victims. And he said he was especially touched by one victim letter, a widow whose husband had passed away two weeks prior to her visiting Bernard Madoff. She went to Mr. Madoff, went to his office. He put his arm around her and said, don't worry, your money is safe with me. That's how CNN reported the sentencing of Bernie Madoff, the disgraced New York financier who masterminded a $65 billion fraud that wrecked the lives of thousands. For years, Madoff had been a pillar of Wall Street and his hedge fund delivered spectacular returns for his investors, which included the likes of Steven Spielberg, universities and charities and a number of British funds too. But last December, Madoff was arrested after it was revealed that his entire business was a Ponzi scheme of epic proportions. So the public face of the age of irresponsibility will spend the rest of his life in prison. But Dan, what needs to be done to restore trust in the financial system that he's left behind? Um, I think an awful lot. I mean, the big um, lasting legacy of Madoff, I think, is going to be enormous amounts of mistrust towards putting your money uh, in the market. And in the US in particular, that's going to come as a blow to the economy because the culture of investing for your own retirement was far more prevalent in the US than it has ever been here. Everyone had a 401k, which is a sort of form of uh, pension that you control. And um, I think people are going to, a lot more people are going to be putting it under the bed in future. And that's going to act as a real drag on the economy. It's going to be one of the things that's going to slow the recovery down. And I think uh, Wall Street in particular has got a huge reputational mountain to climb before it convinces people that it's a straight dealing place again. But Ruth, we've been here a number of times before, haven't we? I mean, after Enron, people said, well, that's it. You know, it will take ages for people to, to gain some kind of trust in the financial system. The world of 
investment in the world of Ponzi schemes, isn't that different, is it? I mean, they both project an image of respectability. They both pretend to be stable. They both say they can give you X amount in returns. I mean, what... I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, what strikes me about people like Madoff, who are criminals, is that how much difference really is there between them and as, as so-called rogues and actually the herd? You know, when we talk about a rogue, we, we mean somebody who's apart from the herd, who's shunned by the herd. But actually, I would say that people like Madoff are part of the piece. And what we've seen in the, in the whole credit crunch is actually a wholesale failure of trust. And it's not about criminal behaviour all the time. It's about what's considered normal and legitimate behaviour as well. And, you know, you look at the word credit, it means belief. Um, And what we've seen is just a massive failure of belief in the system, not just because of the Madoffs and the criminals and the Jerome Curviels, but because of the mainstream traders. And we have to somehow get that belief back. That's going to be a huge uphill climb. It's going to take a very long time. And, you know, you mentioned Enron. Um, That We've all kind of slightly forgotten about that now. Um, But, you know, that was the background to this, was failures of accounting standards. Um, it's, It's a huge task for us all, I think. The one thing I would say that's quite positive is, at least in the States, they do hand out meaningful sentences to these people, which we don't always do here. I mean, that, 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 the comparison with the situation over here, Dan, Ponzi, based in America, Madoff, based in America, Enron, an American thing. I mean, could there ever have been a British Madoff, do you think? Well, I think in a way there has been. Um, uh, I think, to Ruth's point, um, what we saw at RBS and HBOS uh, in a way was our own Madoff. Uh, an awful lot of people lost money from it. OK, we've decided that wasn't criminal. But, I mean, the old joke in the city is, the, you know, the difference between a rogue trader and a star trader is whether they've lost any money or not. I mean, when things are going well, you know, you're a star. And, and when, when, you, when, when suddenly the position goes wrong, it's all that was a, a rogue trade or a sort of, you know, a, a, a criminal act or something. And and actually, I think that all we've done here is we've treated um, our big business catastrophes as sort of um, as corporate failures rather than individual failures. And the American way, I think, of dealing with um, failure is to personalise it a lot more. And so they, they pick out their sort of Bernie Ebers or their, um, or, or their Madoffs or their Kozlowskis. And um, we, we got there a bit with, with Fred Goodwin. But I mean, I think the anger there was more about him still getting a payoff. The actual failure uh, we attributed more to the, to the company. Uh, I don't think there's that much difference. But what? But the point that Roos made is that actually there's a system that lies behind these 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 the, the criminals, and actually perhaps the system needs more more reform than just going for particular targets. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean, when people started talking about the pyramid scheme at, um, uh, that Madoff was running, it, the eerie parallel was with the pyramid scheme that the whole world of capitalism looked like, uh, uh, and still does in a way. I mean, it was all buoyed up on the, on the idea that if you took more money in, you could keep paying more money out and make those returns look like they would carry on going up forever. And in fact, the whole thing was, was built on sand. And um, when the music stopped to mix about five metaphors there, I think, it, it all collapsed. Collapse. And um, so, you know, yes, the, the world has been living in a giant pyramid scheme. And I think one of the most depressing things at the moment, and we've written about this quite a lot in the last couple of weeks, but Ruth read a column about it last week, is that the reform process has stalled and we're all going back and pretending that everything is going to be normal again. And, um, and our chance to, to really shake things up is, is passing. Why do we have this really dysfunctional view of what normality is? I mean, normality should surely be sustainable profits and ethical behaviour. It shouldn't be this madness that we had that went before. Jay, let's bring you in. You work in the property business and I think a, a state agent's rival journalist for the lack of trust that people have, have in them. 
So how much of this trust, Jade, do you think has been lost forever? And how much do you think would just come back once we forget what's happened and you know, memories fade and all of a sudden we're back to where we were a few years ago? I think it's going to take a long time to build trust and I don't think um, it's going to be easily forgotten considering the massive impact it's had on millions and millions of lives so I think it's going to be a very long slow progress to build up that trust again and as Ruth said it's a fundamental problem with a lot of these systems which need to be addressed you know on many different levels on government levels company levels you know and people's personal views towards you know wealth and that sustainable lifestyle so I think it's going to take a very long time. Now, you don't need me to tell you that even in 2009, the most common perception of the typical business person is still the middle-aged white man with his suit, his umbrella and his dull collection of ties. Well, this week, Management Today magazine published its annual list of the most hotly tipped young women in British business. And Jade Tong's one of them. Jade, we're going to do a 30-second style apprentice spiel. Tell us why you're on the list. I'm on the list because I think I represent the majority of ordinary women working in offices who are not dot-com owners, who um, are not, you know, sort of on huge salaries, have got four kids. Um, I think I represent the majority of women successfully getting on with it without having to do extreme sports. You work in the property business. Tell us a bit about what you do there. Um, I work in, I said, a team of commercial real estate. I manage pitch teams, so I I manage and facilitate the process of going out and winning new deals. Um, And that takes it from everything from sort of looking at submission all the way through to, you know, getting client feedback. So I I facilitate the whole process. And what do you make of your being, or what do you make of even having a list like this? Do you think that still shows that actually there's quite a long way to go in highlighting the role of women in business? No, I think awards like this are are absolutely needed. Um, According to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, the number of women amongst FTSE 100 directors has risen from 10.4% in 2006 to just 11% in 2008. So by that rationale, by the time there's enough women that will exceed men in boardrooms, I'll be 107. So I think that it's absolutely needed that these awards are not only essential, but they're a high impact strategy for promoting role models, increasing visibility and celebrating success. Ruth, let's bring you in as our resident expert on women in business. Don't this like this just highlight the, the, the oddity of business still being a man's world? Well, they do. But I mean, is, is that a bad thing? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about the image of the businessman. Um, I fairly recently went on a trip to Iceland where uh, they have much better, that Iceland is fourth in the world in terms of gender equality. We're some way below that. I forget exactly where, but quite a long way. Um, and what was quite exciting for me there was you meet business leaders in Iceland who happen to be female and it's absolutely no big deal. There's no feeling of that undercurrent of slight amaze slightly patronising astonishment that you get here which I think you know we can all testify to and it's actually quite empowering or I find it very empowering to see an image of business leadership that looked like me you know sort of a, a women in their early 40s or late 30s who are in charge of things and it was just normal so yes we need those lists I mean we might also be much more radical than that in Norway they've got a quota system of having 40% of women on boards Um, This was greeted with horror when it was first mooted. And guess what? A lot of the crusty old male chairmen in Norway are actually turning around and saying, this is fantastic. We never knew there was so much female talent out there. It's brilliant for our business. Jade, 
this partly a generational thing, which is why you've got a list of 35 women under 35. When you look around, do you see a number of people in your sort of position who are women, or do you think you actually need the kind of thing that Ruth's talking about, where you have quotas? I think that you do need quotas. I think that in the UK, um, it's probably amongst, you know, the, the sort of least represented. I mean, if you like you said, if you look in European countries, it's very much the normal to have women representing at very senior levels. Even if you look at Asian countries, it's very much the normal. So I don't know why it is in the UK. And I do think that it is important to have quotas um, to get um, representation and to have visibility. I mean, women do represent the workplace and, I, you know, they need to be represented at senior level to make changes happen. And to be controversial here, if I could just cut in, I also went to Qatar recently, which is a very sort of strict Muslim country, and, and I thought in many ways they were better there than, we, than we, we are here. You know, they're very strong in educating their women. Women, again, were in very senior positions, and there was just no big deal about it. But here, here Ruth, we don't have a lot of education inequality and in fact, what, one of the things that people often debate about why there aren't more women in, in senior positions in business or politics or other parts of public life is either they don't have the appetite or because maternity leave actually knocks out uh, a whole proportion of the workforce at a certain quite crucial stage in their working lives. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, yes, you're, you're absolutely right that we have women do well in education, women do well in lower levels up to a certain point, um, and then they get knocked out. Now, I think partly that's due to maternity care issues, but I think it does go beyond that, actually. I think some of it is down to the fact that we still have, in some quarters, a, a culture which women feel to be hostile that and I think that's because you don't have critical mass of women that if you are a woman at the top you are an exception a lot of attention gets focused on you sometimes that can be positive but a lot of times that can be a bit negative and a bit frightening and a lot of women don't like it and I think corporate cultures can be still quite hostile to women's needs and women don't feel they can go into work and be themselves you know they still feel they've got to ape that male model because there simply aren't enough women around to challenge that paradigm well dan I'd, I'd never call you an ape but how do you feel about having to jostle against or female quotas i have a slight problem with quotas and the reason why is i think the failure really is one of imagination when it comes to recruitment particularly at higher levels i think that um you've only got to look at the way that uh, boards are selected to see that people are very, very conservative, non-exec directors and headhunters particularly. And so they tend to recruit in their own image and they recruit middle-aged white guys. Um, now, I, I think that, that that obviously sort of has an impact on the number of women in business, but it has an impact on the number of ethnic minorities in business, has an impact on the, on the age profile of people in business. And more importantly, I think it has an impact on the sort of the type of um, imagination and creativity that you get in, in boardrooms. And I think that actually a fully diverse management profile or, or, or employment profile would involve so many quotas because actually, you know, in a way we've, we've got a quota that's sort of filled almost exclusively by a very, very narrow segment of, of people at the moment. Um, we need to blast that open in a, in, a, in a much bigger way than simply saying, you know, you need a balance of men and women and a balance of, of ethnic mix. And, and, and I mean, the quotas can be good and they can force people to think about, you know, how une unequal and how undiverse things are at the moment. But I do think that, that we need to think way more than just sort of, you know, 
gender and race and these sorts of things we also just need to think about the sort of the um the, the variety of of ideas in boardrooms which are incredibly narrow i mean i always think to use a terribly male kind of um metaphor i think it's almost a bit like people used to talk about you could never get sacked for buying I, ibm if you were sourcing pcs you know ibm was just sort of, yeah, fine a pretty safe bunch but if you always buy ibm you're never going to spot the next google or the next apple and i do think that that that's the kind of recruitment mentality we have at the moment there's a lot of ass covering a lot of people sort of looking for the safe option and the safe option is to recruit someone who looked like the guy who's just left um and until we change that then all sorts of equality issues are not going to get settled but actually business is going to suffer as well can i just say i mean i i, I agree with you that it, it's a problem that goes beyond just women and i think greater diversity in general in the boardroom would be better however one of the reasons i'm sort of slightly reluctantly moving towards quotas which are not ideal i agree um is is that i think it's just taking too bloody long you know and women are not a minority women are uh, half the population and you know as we were saying it could take until we're all well into our you know past 100th birthday before you get anything like equality and people have an instinctive distrust of things like quotas but i think these things do actually work jay let's end with you how optimistic are you about the future for women in business? I'm extremely optimistic. Why? I'm optimistic because I think that awards like this, I said, they bring issues like this out into the open. They they enable a platform for discussions and forums and hopefully that will encourage change. Now, I'm not being funny, but Barack Obama, he didn't just inspire black men to go out and vote. He inspired women and people of all ethnic race. So I don't think that awards like this are just about young women. They're about people. They're about inclusion. They're about diversity. And that's why I think awards like this are important. OK, we'll leave that there. To give us your thoughts on women in business, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. It's been reported that the CIA has turned to Wall Street for its next intake of spies. Out-of-work investment bankers, analysts and traders are being asked to consider a career in espionage. With starting salaries at around $50,000 or around £30,000, it does mean a bit of a pay cut, but at least those expensive suits won't be going to waste. Dan, do you ever fantasise about jacking the day job and becoming an international man of mystery? <laughs> I thought I was. I thought, I thought, I thought uh, journalism was all about shady backroom deals. And uh, no, uh, it's never as glamorous as, uh, as it looks from the outside. I imagine that being a spy is actually really tedious. I've always thought that um, it's the best PR job ever to have James Bond as the emblem for your industry because it disguises the fact that I think most of the time you're sort of analysing grain harvests in Kazakhstan and things. Um, and that many of these people, I think, are going to be really disappointed when they rock up at the CIA and get given the sort of grain report. Ruth, this item reminds me of a conversation I had with someone from a hedge fund just last year who said, well, if I lose my job, I don't really know what else I can do because all I ever do is talk to people and try and get them to buy stuff from me. <laughs> well, I did wonder about this because, you know, a lot of the investment bankers I know are, are inveterate blabbermouths, so I'm not sure how they'd, how they'd really cope with, with the spying. Cloak and dagger. Uh, cloak and dagger stuff. Or, or indeed whether we would want the people who, um, you know, brought down international finance to be in charge of our national security. Set them to um, Al-Qaeda. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I think the more serious point, though, is that it's all about the city having soaked up too much of the of the world's skills in the, or, or Britain's skills, and 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 I think.
think financial services globally as well. These hugely lucrative pay deals um, d- took a lot of our um, best and brightest, and um, it actually it, it sucked talent away from all sorts of industries and walks of life, whether they be in the public or private sector, that that could do with with some some really bright, talented people. Um, I mean, I thought one of the most um, heartening things stats I saw last year was the um, the rate of um, uh, teacher qualification applicate uh, teacher training applicants um, soared uh, as lots of people sort of came out of um, the city and decided they want to go into teaching. Now, I don't know if they necessarily make good teachers or not. I mean, I think there's an arrogant assumption that, that you know teaching is a second second choice, and I don't think it should be. But it, it was really heartening because you think at last here are sort of you know bright graduates thinking that you know there's more to life than just their bonus. When we were talking about this, I was I was just thinking actually I'm far less concerned about what a bunch of unemployed bankers do for their second act than I am about the fact that there are you know there's a report today saying there are a million young people without education or employment or training you know a a million needs and you know we we are and throughout the boom we were guilty of squandering huge amounts of talent and not because it all got siphoned not purely because it all got siphoned into banking Um, you know and I think that's something we need to urgently address and I think the bankers really you know if they want to be James Bond well good luck to them Um, but I'm really less concerned about them and if you weren't a journalist what would you do I'd be a personal trainer to elderly gentlemen and I'd give them all a heart attack. <laughs> Dan? <laughs> You're looking... Uh, uh, what would I do? I, so I'm still struck by that last kind of uh, <laughs> mental image. Uh, um, I don't know. I've never really given it much thought. Uh, I've always thought I'd like to be on the other side of the fence. I've always thought it'd be nice to sort of be in business, but uh, having sort of uh, poured scorn on it from afar for a long time, I don't know if anybody had me. Jade? What would I be? Um, I'd be lying on a beach somewhere... Um, and not have to work at all at all that's the easy way out on which note it's time to say thank you to the panel Dan Roberts Ruth Sunderland and Jay Tong if you want to have a say on any of our topics post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business and if I weren't presenting this podcast I'd be our producer Ben Green but as it is I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was the business (laughs) 